Back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update for episode 118. I think this is going to be a good one. I'm going to call this one Wood Strength with a big old question mark. And the reason I say that is, what the heck is wood strength? How do you measure the strength of a wood? And the answer is you really can't without an application. And this is why it always, I just kind of shake my head when I get asked, like, is this wood strong enough? Or is this a strong wood? Or how do you measure the strength of wood? It's such an it's depends type question. Well, this show lives in the realm of it depends. And I think we're going to do do my best to dive into what exactly do we mean when we talk about wood strength. But first, I do want to say thank you. This idea actually comes from a couple of my Patreon supporters. So thank you for supporting the show. If you want to be cool like them, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. You can find out about supporting the show. I also have a fun thing where I mail out uh, informational species stickers every month to my Patreon supporters. I'll be sending one of those out in a couple of weeks on, I'm pretty excited about this particular species, but that's for a different episode. But mostly I want to say thanks to the great emails that I've been getting over the last couple of weeks. Some great feedback, some great industry news type stories. I love it when you guys help me create the show, not only because, well, hey, it's a lot easier, less work on me when the stuff lands in my inbox, but there's some great points of view coming out of some of the topics we've talked about in the past. And it may just be that I need to take some time to just dedicate a show to feedback because I'll get these emails that are referencing, you know, uh, an episode 50, 60, 70 episodes ago. And it's, it's really fascinating to get different perspectives on this stuff. I'll go back to one of my very first episodes where I say, I don't know everything. Um, and there, I don't know, like... 1% of everything there is to know about lumber and wood. And it's really fascinating when I start to get uh, feedback and uh, differing points of view. So that being said, I wanted to, um, well, let me dive into industry news. Uh, I've got a cool story there, but then I, I want to spend some time on some of the feedback I've gotten from previous episodes and make sure that I address those and kind of foster continuing conversation about topics that I've talked about in the past. Um, couple of you emailed this one to me, and it's about a story of a family in Portland, Oregon, who they had a huge Douglas fir tree fall on their house. Uh, it was really unfortunate. Um, they go into great detail about, you know, when it happened and like their daughter was upstairs when the tree like came through the roof and their cat like went into hiding and they didn't find the cat for like eight days and they thought the cat was dead. Basically, the cat was scared out of his mind and didn't come out of hiding. But the twist to this story is this came down in a, a big storm and a frost that Portland had. The twist is this family had petitioned the city of Portland to remove the tree and had been petitioning for, I think, about three years since 2021. They've been saying the tree's really big. It could be a danger to the house. We want to take it down. So first of all, that came as a shock. I guess it shouldn't come as a shock to me, but I have no such ordinance around me. And I quickly like asked around my office and said, do you guys need to get permission to take a tree down? Um, and everybody very clearly said no. And I've got um, one of the guys uh, I talked to was from Long Island. I talked to somebody in Rhode Island. I've talked to people all over Maryland, people in Pennsylvania and Virginia, and none of them, they all say, no, if it's on my property, I can cut down whatever. I did a little bit of digging and apparently this is not that unusual. The city of Portland 
you, you can't just cut down a tree. You have to get a permit to take down the tree. Now, this may not be universal across the entire city. Perhaps it's in certain neighborhoods. I don't understand anything about um, who owns the land, et cetera. But long story short, you can't just cut down a tree in the city of Portland. And maybe uh, my friends over at uh, Completely Arbitrary can chime in on this. Casey, if you're listening, uh, you used to work for the city of Portland. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But um, yeah, they tried to cut this tree down. The city said, no, you can't. And I kind of side with the city here. Um, you know, it's, it sounds terrible. It's their property and they want to take it down. But they reached out to the city. I'm going to pull up this uh, article here. Um, and, uh, the city's urban forestry division in February of 2022 denied the removal permit for the two Douglas fir trees. And they quote them in saying removal will significantly affect neighborhood character based on the tree's attributes, visibility of the tree to the public or past removals of trees in the area. The city's letter continued to read the tree appears healthy and not dead, dying or dangerous at the time of inspection. Tree is more than 10 feet from an attached structure. And honestly, I mean, certainly there's the beautification side of things, but the grounds that they're denying that, they they inspected it, they said it's not dead, dying, or dangerous, and it is 10 feet away from the structure. Those are the things that we look for. Moreover, the fact that, um, based on the fact that past removal of the trees in the area, now I don't know any details there, but that lead you to believe they have some sort of civil cultural plan and you have already had some trees taken down in the area, you know, taking more down could increase more sunlight, more urban heat dome in that area. And the shade trees are kind of important. So, you know, part of me wants to applaud the city of Portland for this. Part of me thinks it's kind of draconian <laughs> to say you can't cut down a tree, but at the same time, like, you know, I see so many trees in my neighborhood cut down and I've got one section of my neighborhood that's practically, no, it's not practically, it is denuded of trees. And every time I take the dogs for a walk in the summer, I just look at those houses and go, oh my God, like what must their air conditioning bill be? How hot must their house be? Southern exposure with zero shade whatsoever. My side of the neighborhood, we have a lot more trees in my house in particular, I've got a lot of, of, um, pretty old trees, trees dating back to the sixties. And I provide a lot of shade and I will tell you my AC bill in the summer is not bad at all because I have a lot of shade on my house. Now that leads to other issues like moss and stuff like that. It's difficult to grow a bunch of stuff in my backyard because I have such deep shade, but frankly, I'd rather have the trees and the shade. So without regulating it, this is what can happen in my neighborhood where just trees are taken down because somebody doesn't want to rake the leaves. And believe me, that's been the answer. Like every time I, I hear a tree coming down in my neighborhood, of course, the woodworker in me wants to go out and see if I can get some of that lumber and end up talking to the homeowner or the arborist and say, you know, why is the tree coming down? Is there, is it sick? And usually I hear, well, we don't want to rake the leaves or the arborist says, well, the owner just said they're tired of raking the leaves. That's the reason the tree's coming down. And that's, that's kind of sad. So as much as I, I feel like having a law saying you can't take the tree down kind of bothers me a little bit. Um, at the same time, unless somebody steps up and regulates it, you end up with neighborhoods with no trees in them. And if you have a silvicultural plan here and too many trees have been taken down to allow you know more sunlight to hit those homes, that's a pretty valid reason. Now, it is an absolute shame. I don't want to you know skip over the fact that this is terrible, that these people... Um, 
had a really traumatic experience as this tree came through the house and they had to, you know, vacate their house and everything. Um, but it, it was a freak storm and trees come down in storms. It's, it's unfortunate, but it sounds to me, at least according to the city's assessment, it's not like the tree was predisposed to coming down. Apparently there were a lot of trees that came down in this storm. And I remember hearing about this on the news. It was a big storm and it was kind of unusual for the city of Portland. So, you know, this stuff happens. Nature comes and knocks stuff down. Trees fall down. And had that tree been 20 feet from the house, it probably still would have hit the house because it was a big tree. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is what comes with an urban canopy. Eventually, these trees are going to get big enough that if they do come down, they are going to damage houses. And if you cut them down before they become a damage to the house, well, then they don't add any kind of shade and they don't detract from that urban heat dome effect. So, I don't know. I'm definitely of two minds here. There's part of me that like, as I said, kind of like, it's my land, damn it. <laughs> I'm going to cut down what I want, even though I personally wouldn't. And maybe that's easy for me to say because I do love the trees on my property. I've also never had a tree fall down on my house. So it's also, again, easy for me to say this, but I don't know. I'd be curious to see if anybody's had this situation. The story does get a little bit uglier though. in the fact that the tree was removed and now they're wanting to grind the stump down and they're asking the homeowner to pay the city to grind down the stump for the tree that the city wouldn't let them remove in the first place. That certainly gets into parts where I'm going to look askance at that. But uh, yeah, I'd be curious to hear from anybody who can you take down a tree or do you need a permit? And if so, um, what does it take to get a permit? Uh, it's really kind of interesting. So um, thank you for the, what, the four or five people who sent that my way. I, I do appreciate those kind of news stories. So let's get on to some of the feedback I've had from previous episodes, starting from um, last, uh, last, uh, the last episode on yellow birch. Um, Archie wrote in and said, I remember a literary reference to birch bark canoes. And you spoke of uh, yellow birch as a possible boat building um, and due to its ability to absorb water. He goes on to say, you know, a birch bark canoe is certainly a small watercraft, I recognize that the bark may have some different properties from the wood, but perhaps another birch with different properties may have been used. And it's so funny because this is one of those topics like that's stored away in my head. Like all of us at some point feel like we could do well on Jeopardy because we have a lot of useless facts stuck in our head. This is one of those useless facts stuck in my head. The birch bark canoe is definitely made from the bark, not the wood of the tree, the bark and the outer and possibly inner cambium layers. One of the reasons that, well, first of all, bark for the most part, bark is waterproof. Bark is what protects the tree. While the tree is alive, the bark is its armor, its, res its resistance against the weather and the bugs and the elements. And that's why when I talk about like when you have a log, don't debark it. Like a log will keep for quite some time if you leave the bark on it. Assuming that tree was felled in the winter when the sap wasn't rising, if the sap was rising, then it's a very tasty morsel and the bugs will find their way through the bark. But for the most part, bark is a, is a protective layer and is waterproof. Birch bark is particularly waterproof, but what's interesting about birch bark is it grows around the tree. You look at a lot of trees and the bark kind of runs longitudinally up the long axis of the trunk. Uh, ash, poplar, oak, walnut, you can see the grooves definitely align in a vertical direction as it climbs the tree. 
birch bark and just see how it peels off. It peels off in narrow sheets from around the circumference of, of the trunk. Well, that means that you can get these narrower sheets. You can peel these sheets off low to the ground and they're kind of already curved in the shape of a canoe. That works out incredibly well. Birch bark, um, yellow birch is primarily what was used, but these birch bark canoes were made by indigenous people all across North America. Um, and you, I'm not sure if in Europe, I'm not really sure. Obviously European history goes way, way, way back, um, before like North American history. Sorry to indigenous folks. I know your history goes way, way back, but you know what I mean? Since the settling air quotes, <laughs> the settling, uh, and the Europeans came over, um, I don't know that there was a long history of any kind of canoe building or whatever. Someone's going to pipe up and correct me. Please do, because I honestly don't know. But across North America, they could have used several different birch trees. And like I said in that episode, the birch, the different species of birch are all pretty similar. Um, workability of the wood, but also just that peeling bark is pretty typical along paper birch, yellow birch, and silver birch. But more than likely in North America, since yellow birch is the most common, it was yellow birch that was used. They used the um, the bark and it was built around a frame. Frames were usually built out of cedar that were essentially soaked and bent to shape to form the ribs of it. Then any joints between the birch bark outer were sewn together with um, roots from like spruce and pine and fir. Um, then they used... Uh, pine resin to kind of glue things together and kind of seal things off to caulk everything around it. But what you end up with is a watertight canoe that's extraordinarily light. You just have the ribbing from Western Red Cedar, which is also light, but then there's no thick sheathing. It's just the bark itself. So it's, it's very, very cool um, as far as its ability to be used as a boat building, uh, kind of irrelevant to what I was talking about in the episode because we're talking about the wood here. But I do find, you know, anytime you find a tree that, you know, other than the wood, it has usage. Most trees have some sort of medicinal use in the leaves. A lot of trees, the bark can be used. Um, baskets and things like that are made out of bark. Hickory chairs, the, the webbing on the seat was made out of the inner Inner bark, I think. Outer bark. Inner bark, I believe, of, of a hickory tree. Very, very cool stuff when there's other uses. You know, you talk about um, we, we eat the whole buffalo. Well, we take the whole tree and use every bit of it. And that's uh, one particular example there. Uh, moving on. Mike um, said, I was going back and listening to old episodes again because they're fun. You're, you're my kind of fun, Mike. Um, I just noticed you said something like, uh, it's probably fine for you or other hobbyists, etc. But if you don't have a fumigation certificate, you have to disclose that and you can't use that lumber in any commercial development. Um, I was referencing backyard solar kiln operators and not keeping the temperature uh, constantly at, at fumigation levels over time. So Mike says, does framing material or other construction lumber not need these fumigation certificates? Sorry if this is a dumb question. It just caught me off guard when you said that because there's no way the two by fours and two by sixes at my local big box store have been kiln dried based on the water squirting out of them when they're cut. Um, great point. Um, there is fumigation certification required in framing lumber. It's a different certification than what we have with hardwoods and it requires different um, <clears throat> 
parameters, I guess is the word I'm looking for. A lot of the lumber stamps you see on framing lumber takes into account the, the bug proofing that's done. But what you're talking about, it is definitely kiln dried. But generally, because two by fours and two by sixes and two by eights are dried quite fast, they undergo quite a bit of case hardening during the drying. So the reverse case hardening process, that last step in the kiln drying cycle where you reintroduce moisture, you've taken the lumber down to like 0%, then you reintroduce moisture as you start to bring the temperature down at the same time. And that rehydrates the inner you know, gooey center of the Twinkie and it reverses the case hardening. So case hardening, it's, it's often referred to as a very bad thing. Case hardening is part of any kiln drying cycle is if, if you don't reverse the case hardening is when you have problems. So certainly you can, there's different layers of levels of case hardening, you know, shades of gray in, in case hardening. If you go too fast and too high, you, there's no amount of reversing that you can do to the case hardening. But every kiln cycle has case hardening that has to be reversed by the reintroduction of moisture. Well, because they dry them really quickly, they cool them just as quickly. So they're pumping moisture back into these boards. And these boards are like sponges at this point. Now, the cell walls have been hardened as the temperature dropped really below like 10%. Um, somebody else asked a question, how can you tell the difference between air dried and kiln dried? If you have a moisture meter, anything that's going to be below about 10% has been kiln dried. It's very difficult. Maybe in the exception in the desert, it's difficult to get it that low unless you're sticking in a kiln. But the cell walls have hardened, so they're not absorbing. They're going to absorb water, but they're going to shed it also very quickly. So you get these two by fours that just get water like practically you know, soaked in the stuff. They're thirsty. They're going to soak up a bunch of water. It's going to soak in a little bit, but the hardened cell walls aren't going to prevent that much absorption. So you end up with a lot of free water. And that's what happens. Like if you go and pick up a two by four and you think, man, this is heavy and it actually feels cool to the touch. If you turn it up on end and leave it overnight, you'll see a puddle underneath it. Or as you cut it, and as he says, you see water squirting out that's what's happening. It's all that water that's not bound in the cell walls because of the, the, it is kiln dried. It can't absorb really any more water. It's just water hanging out in the vessels, um, free unbound water. That's what that's all about. Uh, here's another feedback from Mark. Um, I was talking about reaction wood. Uh, I think that was what, two episodes ago? Um, he said you were looking for information on stress wood, but hadn't found a large amount. Um, I say that I found some, but I also found like on the Google SERP on the search engine result page, like the first 10 results were about teaching and parenting. And it wasn't until like the 11th or 10th result that you got down to the actual stress wood science. Um, but he says, as you are keen to take a deep dive into most subjects, I thought it might be of interest for you to search instead for reaction wood, as I think you find more data on the subject. The work of Klaus Matek, particularly his book, The Body Language of Trees, a handbook for failure analysis. Now, does that not sound like the geekiest, most awesome book ever? The Body Language of Trees, a handbook for failure analysis. Yep, I'm getting that book. Uh, perhaps that would combine your interests in trees and physics behind their growth patterns and how that might affect their timber. Outstanding recommendation, Mark. I really, uh, I really appreciate that. Um, oh, he also says that um, you mentioned that yellow birch is found in Europe as well as over North America and is used for Baltic birch plywood. As far as I'm aware, Betula allegensis is not native to Europe, um, which is something... Um, 
so I imagine that silver birch is used for European plywood production. Silver birch is used for European plywood production, but yellow birch has been extensively planted plantation-wise uh, across especially northern Europe and like the boreal forests um, because it is a, is a fast-growing, very easily spread, very easily managed forest. It's not that far off from silver birch, but as they were replanting, I think probably what happened is people got yellow birch because that was the easy one to find and started planting and realized it wasn't that big of a working property difference. So it doesn't really matter. And honestly, the more you know diversity you might find, if you have plantations of yellow and silver birch, that's got to be better as far as biodiversity goes. But yeah, um, long story short, there's so little difference between the two species that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference if a piece of birch plywood was built from yellow or silver or a little bit of both. Finally, <clears throat> I have a, a statement here from Michael. He says, um, you talked about birch syrup and maple syrup, but walnut syrup is apparently a rare but fancy thing. Tapped like maples or birch. I've seen folks looking to pay $350 a gallon for it boiled to the right sugar level. Um, it's got me enough to ponder milling. Um, it's got me enough to ponder whether or not I should mill my walnuts or tap them for syrup. Who knew? Walnut syrup. I would like to taste that. I'm going to look that up and see if I can find some. I wonder though, with all the nut allergies and the um, uh, aleopathy that is walnut, um, hmm, yeah, it's one of those things where you probably get it, but it's got a thousand and one allergen labels on it or something. Walnut syrup. I'm going to check that out. I'm going to put some walnuts in my pancakes and put walnut syrup over top of it. Sounds fantastic. All right, enough of that. Thank you for the feedback, guys. I love kind of continuing on these conversations from things I've talked about in the past. Good, good stuff. So keep that up. Please feel free to send them in. Um, you can contradict me directly. You're probably right. <laughs> But I definitely want to read these things on the show. So let's take some time to talk about wood strength. This is a tough one. Um, it's a really tough one. And you can't look at wood strength in abstract. Well, I suppose you can. And scientifically, people have certainly done this. But when you're asking, is this a strong wood? You can't really answer that without also asking, how do I plan to use it? And you see... This is where things get sticky and where I'm not even gonna try to pretend to understand it because while I know a lot about trees and I fancy myself uh, you know, somebody who studied physics and I did study physics, but I am definitely not an engineer. Sheldon Cooper uh, would not look down his nose on me because I do not know how to apply this. I'm, I'm a theory guy. <laughs> anyway, um, how you use a board and where the force is on that board. Is that force you know, along the long axis, which would be measured by max compression strength? Is it how much that board um, deflects without breaking? You know, How much will that board bend before it breaks? These are all modules of elasticity, modules of rupture numbers uh, perpendicular to the grain. You know, What kind of shearing forces are on that board? What kind of tension, what kind of compression is the board under? Is the load static? or is the load dynamic? These are all engineering terms and there are all kinds of values and things and we can use these numbers we've talked about episode after episode to help calculate will you know this board, this species be appropriate for whatever application we're using it in. But I've also said time and again that the numbers for wood are high enough 
that in most applications, most woodworking applications, the board is strong enough. Where this becomes an issue is building things like bridges, building things like buildings, skyscrapers. Um, skyscrapers are being made out of wood these days. That's mostly mass timber, you know, CLTs and LVLs and things. Um, boardwalks to some extent, you know, what kind of deflection are you gonna see on this board? So are you gonna have like a little springy um, motion as you're walking along the length of that boardwalk because the average homeowner's deck is different than a boardwalk. You know, there's thousands of people walking on a boardwalk and cars and all kinds of stuff on a boardwalk. These are the things when you need to start calculating this. Anytime you're in a public use situation, you need to obviously make sure that it's safe. For building furniture, for building the large majority of even homes, it's not so much the wood strength that becomes an issue, it's other things like flame retardancy. And there's so many other things in the system. You think of like the, the structural member of a stud, how strong is a stud, but you're not just gonna have a stud, you're gonna have multiple studs in a wall frame that's gonna have sheathing attached to it that's going to make the wall immensely stronger than the stud itself. And I recognize that there are people adding up the structural dimensions of the, uh, the engineering side of a stud combining those together into a frame and that can all be calculated and that has been calculated over the years. So I say all this to say, I don't really want people to get caught up too much in that, but do recognize that the quote unquote strength of a wood depends heavily upon how it's used. Is that wood, does it have a certain amount of span to it? For instance, my Rubo workbench um, and the typical Rubo workbench has a slab top with no aprons underneath it. There's no support under the top between the legs. And most of these benches are gonna have like a 48 to 60 inch span between the legs. So in order to counteract that, we make the top super thick. If you were to make a Rubo out of one inch thick material, it doesn't matter what species you chose, it was gonna be springy, it's gonna sag, it's gonna flex a lot under load. But when you make that bench top four or five inches thick, it honestly doesn't matter what species you throw at it. And I get this question all the time, is this wood strong enough for a workbench? Depends on what kind of workbench you build. You know, if you're building a Nicholson style where you're just using maybe, you know, one and a half inch thick lumber, um, but it's got an apron underneath it, yeah, it's fine. But if you're gonna use one and a half inch thick lumber to try and span that four, five foot distance between Rubo legs, then no, you're gonna need a thicker piece of wood to not sag over time. So, I say all this because I don't want somebody to say, well, what about this or what about that? It's an incredibly complex equation to wrap your head around. And again, it's probably not necessary to really think in this level of detail for most of the things we're building. If it gets in a situation where it is gonna matter, you're probably an engineer or you have an engineer on your staff that's gonna figure all this stuff out. For the rest of us, let's set that aside and let's talk about some generalizations. And I have had a couple of questions that have come in over the last couple of episodes talking about this because I've made some statements over the last couple of episodes talking about how rate of growth relate to strength, both in hardwoods and softwoods. So putting aside anything I've said in the past, let's just say the general myth is slower growth is stronger, fast growth is weaker. I think what me, me may be more apt to say is the denser the wood is, the stronger it's going to be. And again, let's just talk strong 
in abstract, strong in a vacuum, you know, forgetting about dynamic static loads and, and direction against the grain, perpendicular grain, parallel grain, et cetera, just in general, and I think it's safe to say in general, the denser the wood is, the stronger it will be. But denser isn't always slower grown. Hardwoods versus softwoods is going to change the game too because there's a different structure. Hardwoods have pores and they're arranged differently. We talk about this all the time. Ring pores, semi-ring pores, diffuse pores. Softwoods don't have pores. They do have vessels, which are kind of like pores, but they're quite sporadic um, and not all softwoods have them. They do have tracheids, which kind of act like pores, but it's, it's a different density arrangement, totally different structure. But what both hardwoods and softwoods do have is early wood and late wood. Earlier in the growth season, they're growing faster and the early wood is going to be less dense. Late wood, you know, later in the season, they slow down a little bit and the wood is denser. So that plays a lot into density. And you might think, okay, well, a faster grown tree is going to have wider space growth rings. So it's weaker, but not necessarily. If you look at a wider spaced growth ring, you know, look at the old thing. You see people all the time comparing, you know, a stud from 100 years ago versus a stud at Home Depot today. And you see these really wide spaced growth rings. But look at the proportion of early wood to late wood. Now, that wider spaced growth ring may have a wider band of, of lighter early wood, but you'll also find that possibly the late wood is wider as well. Some species you'll find that there's a proportional increase in both early and late wood. So while there is a wider space, there's also more late wood in there that can make up overall denser species. Um, I found an image and I'm going to see if I can include it in the show notes. I have to extract it from a PDF first, but it's an image that shows uh, a glue lamb beam and it's, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, four different layers of, I don't think it really matters. We'll just say, I think it's Douglas fir from the look of it. And there are um, three of the laminations are very, very tight growth rings. We would consider it to be generically old growth lumber. You know, the number of rings per inch is very, very high. And then there's one beam that looks like you just pulled it off the Home Depot rack today. Very few, maybe one or two rings per inch. And the density of each one of these laminations is labeled. The highest density by 0.2 two is those wide growth rings. And if you look at it, you'll see certainly wider early wood, but you also see significantly wider late wood, which is the really, really dense stuff. If you've worked with Douglas fir, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So right there, rate of growth kind of doesn't have a correlation with density. You can't say it's growing slower, it's gonna be more dense because of the way trees grow with early wood and late wood. The other thing to think about here is the rate of growth also changes as a tree ages. In the early years, the rate of growth is quite high and it will continue to increase year over year. Think about the average human, you know, babies, tiny little things, and then they get to two and they're, you know, two years old and they're like, what, two, 
two and a half times their height in those couple of years. And then you fast forward to like a 15 year old. And I know when I was 15, I was already six feet tall. So that rate of growth is pretty substantial and trees will be very much the same. You'll see, you know, a, a sapling, maybe a couple feet tall, but a two year old sapling could be six feet tall, could be four feet tall. By the time it gets to 10 years old, that sapling, you know, it's no longer a sapling anymore, but it's liable to be 15, 20 feet tall, dependent upon the species. As the tree gets older, the rate of growth does slow down, mainly because there's more of the tree to nurture. Um, you know, and you think about it, uh, the, the more you weigh, the more calories you need to beat your, uh, to meet your basal metabolic rate. Um, <laughs> unfortunately we still manage to exceed those calories, but you get the point. So as a tree gets older and older, the growth rate kind of slows down and even plateaus, and then will even begin to decline. The rate of growth will actually start to slow down as a tree gets older. And, and this curve kind of depends upon the species, but also depends upon the climate, the soil chemistry, all kinds of external factors that will affect its growth rate. Now put a pin in that, because I want to come back to that later, those external factors that affect growth rate. This rate of growth changes the ring width. So you think of a growth ring comprised of both early wood and late wood. And when you count the rings, you're counting, you know, it's easier I find to count the late wood because that's the darker and you're counting those rings of late wood. But each ring includes early wood and late wood. So this rate of growth will change the width of that ring, the width of the early wood, but also the width of the late wood. Um, We'll also get a little bit more detail on that in just a second. Let me get this, this thought out here. Juvenile wood, also sometimes known as core wood, is, is put on when the cambium layer is less than about 15 years old. So under 15, the trees are putting on juvenile wood. Juvenile wood is, is definitely less dense and a weaker wood than an adult wood. As a tree reaches maturity, if you will, and it starts putting on adult wood, this wood is um, denser. Now, I can't say significantly denser or half as dense or twice as dense, because again, it will vary from species, but also vary based upon soil chemistries and climate and things like that. But more mature wood is definitely the denser, the strength of a tree. And you think about it as an earlier wood or as a more juvenile tree that's going to be more flexible it's going to be battered by the wind it needs to be a little bit weaker a little bit more pliable a little bit more flexible so the tree doesn't blow down while it's quite thin grab a you know a three inch diameter branch and you can snap it over your knee without a problem take a six inch diameter branch and you probably won't be able to snap that over your knee unless it's already rotten so while it's younger it needs that juvenile wood needs to be weaker more pliable. But here again, strength, you know, a more pliable wood could actually be viewed as stronger because it bends without breaking. Again, that's a dynamic force thing. It's a totally other issue. Let's pretend I didn't even say that. So what we're really looking for as far as strength and creating a structural timber is we want a tree to have stopped putting on juvenile wood and start putting on more of that adult, that higher density, stronger wood. So, um, Let's take this to another level. The density differences between early and late growth, again, will vary from species to species, but the contrast you see from early to late wood is a good indicator of that density delta. Low contrast trees, so very little difference between early and late wood, will be more uniform. 
regardless of the ring size, early, you know, fast or slow grown, how wide that ring is, it's gonna be a more uniform density because there's very little contrast. You're not finding that the late wood is that much denser, therefore it's not really any darker and not more contrasting. Um, so those low contrast trees, I'm talking about spruces, firs, um, yellow cedar is a good example. I'm talking mainly in softwoods right now. I'm gonna get to hardwoods in a second. It's easier to just talk about softwoods. Um, there's very little contrast. The early to late growth is gonna be very much the same. You'll find that it's a more uniform density throughout. And the way of looking at this contrast, you really can divide woods into six different groups that here's the important part. Now, actually, let me define the six groups. Group one would be softwoods that have no visible transition between early and late wood. These tend to be tropical softwoods. Um, you know, even growth throughout the year, there is no early season or late season. It's pretty much the same climate all year round. Group two would be medium transition softwoods. There's, there's definitely, there is a, a ring, you can count the rings, but it's not real, real stark. These are your firs, your spruces, eastern white pine to some extent. Group three would have abrupt transitions between early wood and late wood. This is Douglas fir. Now again, remember, Douglas fir is not a true fir. I said the firs were in that medium transition. Douglas fir is a pseudosuga. Um, Menziesii. It's not, it's closer to Cypress than it is actually to a fir. Douglas fir, definitely stark contrast. The hard pines, the ponderosa pines, all the southern yellow pine group, those have a stark contrast. Group four is hardwoods that are diffuse porous. Um, group five, hardwoods that are semi-ring porous, and then group six being ring porous hardwoods. So now that we find those six groups, the takeaway to this is in four, those first four groups, the softwoods and the diffuse porous hardwoods, there is really no correlation between rate of growth and density. It's pretty much the same, whether it's fast grown or slow grown. Um, depending upon how closely spaced those growth rings are, the density stays pretty much the same. If they're closely spaced, if you've got 10 rings per inch or if you have two rings per inch. And doing density tests on those four groups tell us that it's pretty much the same. There's little to no correlation. Now, external factors, again, may have some play on that. But again, taking these trees in a vacuum, very little correlation. No, no correlation is what the what the literature is saying. And I have a couple of sources that I can cite in the show notes that both cite this. One of those is Bruce Hoadley's book, um, Understanding Wood, but there's several scientific papers that I read on this as well. Group five, the semi-ring porous hardwoods show a little bit of correlation between growth rate and density. Because you're starting to get the pores a little bit more aligned. And remember, pores are basically just dead space. So obviously, low density, it's dead space. Um, but the pores are, are not quite ordered. They're, they're semi-ring pores. In other words, there's a gradient from that denser ring, and it kind of gets sparser and sparser and sparser into, into the late wood. So a little bit of correlation. Group six, the ring porous woods, do show a correlation. And again, not necessarily a super, super strong, hyper compelling correlation, but because ring porous woods take all of that dead air, all of those pores and lump them closely together in the early wood, therefore all of the really dense stuff is lumped close together in the late wood. 
But so here's the thing. These ring porous woods, and let's talk about uh, Fraxinus americana, uh, ash, uh, or, or, or red oak, Quercus alba, um, Quercus rubra, excuse me. Um, if you look at a red oak, you look at an ash tree, those pore rings on a slow growth tree are quite narrow. Um, the pore rings on a fast growing tree are quite wide. In both instances, the late growth is about the same width. So what you get on a fast grown red oak or ash is closely packed rings, but the majority of the ring is comprised of low density, poor material, early wood material. And the lower proportion is the denser stuff, which is why a fast grown oak is actually weaker because it's got lower density. A slow grown oak is, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting caught up in my, own, in my own head here. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So what you find is the red oaks and the, the ashes and the things like that, they tend to be, hold on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from the, uh, the scientific literature here um, that terms it better. Uh, because I'm I'm constantly mixing these up in my head because again I'm thinking in terms of like chair making and that's an applied um, situation. So um, in these species, the ring porous woods, the width of the low density early wood, the the low density early wood part of that growth ring, it's fairly consistent, um, irrespective of growing conditions. Whereas the width of the denser late wood will vary from year to year. So I, I said that wrong earlier. So let me back up and say this again. The width of the pores, the early wood part of that growth ring, is fairly consistent irrespective of the growing conditions, whether it's fast or slow. The width of the denser late wood will vary from year to year. This is gonna mean that the fast growth tends to produce a higher proportion of high density late wood within certain limits, of course. Fast growth produces relatively dense, strong timber and vice versa for the slow growth. The slower growth is going to have more, it's, it's going to vary. So as it's growing slower, the growth rings are getting closer together, but those wide open pores, that stays very consistent irrespective of growing conditions, irrespective of the speed. So in those closely packed, those say 10 growth rings per inch, most of that is dead air. And that ends up being a overall lower density wood and therefore a weaker wood. Fast grown, um, yeah, <laughs> see, I'm, I'm missing it, mixing it up again. The slow grown ring porous hardwoods tend to be weaker whereas the fast-grown ones tend to be stronger. And this is why when you read the works of Ginny Alexander or Peter Follinsby, chairmakers who are arriving parts to make their chairs, most Windsor makers, Curtis Buchanan, Peter Galbert, they're gonna be looking for faster-grown ring-porous woods to split out their steam-bent parts. Now for, let's just look at a Windsor chair. And I said I wasn't gonna apply things, but I'm gonna apply things. Um, a Windsor chair has steam bent bow, steam bent um, arm, and um, riven spindles. 
we want obviously to bend the the bow and the arm. So we want something that's going to rive out easily and it's going to compress um, when you put it in the steam box and put it around the bending form, it's gonna compress. That's where those ring pours um, woods come in handy. The spindles need to be shaved quite thin, but you don't want them to snap. So you rive those out again along those early wood pours, those little perforations in the wood. And what you're left with is the denser material and you get a flexible spindle that will give as you sit in it and be comfortable, but it won't snap. For the legs, we want dense material. We want quote unquote strong wood. So we use a diffuse porous hardwood. A lot of times it's maple. Maple turns and holds details really well, but it's also diffuse porous, which again, irrespective of the growth rate, it's going to be dense throughout. Remember that is lumped under group three, uh, excuse me, group four, of those where there shows no correlation between rate of growth. The seat, again, you don't want it to split on you. You don't want it to, you know, split as you sit on it because it's a plank seat. You know, you're driving legs into it. You're going to drill holes into it. So you don't want to split it. And they're wedges, you know, tapered tenons that go in here that have a wedge that hold them in place. So don't want to, we don't want a wood that's going to split. We don't really want a ring porous wood in the seat. We also want a wood that's somewhat easy to carve. So we use something that's like a diffuse porous wood or a softer one or tend to use something like a, a pine, like a northeastern white pine that's going to be somewhat homogenous, easier to carve. But again, it's not going to split on you. So there's an applied use of these six groups that that can show you that the stronger wood for your bow for your bent parts is going to be that that um faster grown wood but if i'm not you know not not in that situation i'm looking to build a table and i'm not riving my parts out and i want a certain amount of strength then i probably want a denser wood overall so then you could say well maybe Maybe faster growth, maybe a slower growth, or maybe just build it out of a diffuse porous wood and rate of growth doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Or build it out of a semi-ring porous wood and rate of growth still doesn't really matter. There's a little bit of correlation, but it doesn't matter enough in the scales that we're talking about with furniture. So this is where some of the people that emailed in and said, whoa, 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 you know, um, Peter Follinsby says that, you know, we want these trees to be faster growing. And you're saying that it's the opposite. Well, Sometimes it is the opposite. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes a slower grown hardwood is stronger. Sometimes a faster grown hardwood is stronger. Which leads me to my next horribly frustrating wrinkle, but I kind of love this. I said earlier to put a pin in this about external factors. Good forestry practices produce better quality juvenile wood. Remember the juvenile wood is, is wood for the most part, we'll just say under 15 year old trees that generally tends to be lower density. But a good forestry practice for that particular species, for that particular climate, for that particular end result will produce a better quality juvenile wood, but it also will, I hate to say force, but it will have a, it'll have a tree maturing faster from juvenile wood into adult wood. In, inside 15 years, in other words. So in other words, care and feeding for your trees, providing plenty of sunlight, providing plenty of moisture, plenty of nutrients to the trees, giving them space to grow, which can give them that sunlight, will allow uh, a tree to go from juvenile to adult wood much faster than 15 years. So you're putting on denser wood earlier. Your juvenile wood is also going to be denser 
because you're caring for this. You're singing to your trees, you're talking to your trees, you're watering them all the time. You're producing a stronger juvenile wood. The other thing here is good forestry practices. If you're growing lumber, you're gonna prune those branches. You're gonna prevent the branches from happening. Branches make knots. Knots severely weaken a wood by interrupting that long grain. So good forestry practice, and dependent upon the silvicultural practice, some of it will cause the tree to shoot straight up to the canopy and not branch out. Other instances, you're pruning the branches while they're still pin knots and they don't interrupt the grain. Those good forestry practice will create a straight bowl that gets plenty of sunlight, gets plenty of nutrients, denser juvenile wood, no knots to interrupt that grain, and an earlier onset of adult wood will produce a stronger tree than one that was maybe left to nature's elements. So let's go back to my statement in the pine episode where I talked about the spruce pine fir, the construction lumber, and you want that stuff super, super fast grown because it makes a better structural timber. Well, again, we're talking about in all cases of softwoods, rate of growth has been proven to have very little impact on the density. However, juvenile wood is less dense. And if we grow a forest of trees meant to be studs, how do we do that? Well, we grow them. Um, well, they start as a broadcast spreader to get them growing up quickly. And then they're grown, they tend to be um, manicured, I guess is a good word, cultivated in rows. So there's plenty of sunlight. You're able to water them just like you would water corn in rows of, of corn or soybean or something like that. You are getting a very healthy tree that grows very, very fast, but it's also a much denser, well-nourished juvenile wood maturing to an adult wood very quickly. So you can grow studs with a very high turn rate, producing very uniform density woods. And this is why the spruce pine fir stuff that you find the SPF for structural lumber. Well, what did I say? Spruce, fir, those are the kind of medium contrast woods. Fir, and when I say fir, people automatically think of Douglas fir. Again, fir is not a fir, it's closer to cypress. You will find Douglas fir in studs from time to time. You'll find it in four by fours more often than not, just because of the, the turn rate and the size of tree required to get a four by four. Um, that's a different story. As that tree gets older, you're able to put on um, more, uh, uh, more growth rings and things like that. But talking about everything we've already discussed before about rate of growth and that abrupt transition would like Douglas fir not really making a big difference, you can see where if it's not going to make much of a difference, let's grow them as fast as we can in order to get more studs, a higher turn rate here. The issue of this juvenile wood tends to be less stable, less dimensionally stable, and have a much, much higher propensity for twist. Go to any big box store, pull a stud out, and what does it do? It's twisting. They twist like crazy and people wonder why, why, how are they drying this wood that's twisting that way? I'm not gonna say the drying's not at fault, but more importantly, most two by fours, most studs are made from juvenile wood. Now it's particularly robust, hardy juvenile wood, but it still has less stability and it will twist. We don't care because who cares if a stud twists? You're just gonna build it into a frame and you're gonna put sheathing over top of it. If it doesn't stay perfectly straight, it's not a big deal. Plus you can also kind of muscle it into straight um, 
when you when you build it into a frame. So this is why going way back to one of the first 10 episodes, I talk about people say studs are not like they used to be. Hell no, they're not. And thank goodness they're not because what a waste of good lumber when we can grow studs to be better for what they're intended to be, growing them fast, growing the specific plantations with really clear cut silvicultural methods. Um, and you can turn them higher and you continue to keep up with the demand for studs with a very, very specific silvicultural plan. And that silvicultural plan feeds the strength of the wood. So whew, there's a lot. This is a very dense episode, but I'm hoping that you can take away nothing else than say the correlation between rate of growth and density. It's not really there. Call it a myth more than anything else, with the exception of ring porous woods. And even then, it's still kind of specious at best. So, you know, again, I'll, I'll reiterate what I said in the beginning. None of this takes into account the application and the direction of the force, or whether it's a dynamic or static load. All of that is going to add another wrinkle, but I really don't think we need to get too caught up in that until you're in a situation where you're gonna to wanna to hire an engineer. So the answer to the question, is this wood strong enough? Density will give you a good idea. And if you're not certain, again, density numbers are kind of difficult to decipher in, in, in abstract, you know, what is 0.5 density or specific gravity really tell me? But if I'm looking at a piece of, you know, butternut, that is, I don't, honestly, I don't know. I'm pulling this number out of thin air. We'll say butternut is 0.3. I think it's 0.35. I don't know. We'll just say it's 0.3. Well, walnut is like 0.4, closer to 0.5. They are very close cousins. Butternut is often called white walnut. But what's going to be a stronger wood? Walnut, because it's about 0.2 denser. Therefore, it's going to be denser. But here's the thing. I built a lot of stuff out of butternut that hits dynamic loads and all this fun stuff. Um, doesn't really matter. Most of the wood we're building with for applications will be strong enough. But if you're concerned and you want a stronger wood, look to the density number. That's the closest thing we can say. A denser wood is going to be stronger. It's the application stuff that throws things off. When you get to really dense woods, now you get woods that are brittle and they could snap under load. But here again, I can't even begin to calculate that stuff. I'm not an engineer. If there's an engineer out there listening who wants to come on the show and help us calculate that, I'd say all, let's do it. But I'd also would say, I might make fun of that engineer at the same time for overthinking it. When it comes to furniture building, when it comes to home building, um, you know, boat building, I really don't think it plays that big of a role in all of this. So I hope that helps you understand a little bit better how the strength of wood can be measured. It is a great big, it depends. But I think understanding density and understanding the structure of trees and that early wood to late wood proportion really gives you an insight, not only in how trees grow, but how that structure can attribute to, I'm working this wood and it feels hard or it feels beefy, it feels heavy. What is it that attributes to that? It just gives you kind of a deeper understanding of the wood that we work every day. So, wow. Um, I wanna say thank you to um, all the people that sent me questions about wood strength. Uh, there's a lot, um, and I put a few in here 
Um, both Gregory and Chad sent me an email very recently uh, calling me out for some of my statements in the Pine episode. They were confused about rate of growth, and that's really what kind of um, inspired this episode. But I've gotten any number of emails about, is this strong enough? And I hope if you listen to this episode, you'll have a better understanding of, yes, it's strong enough, but also why it's strong enough. So with that, Thanks, everybody, for listening to the show. Thank you for those of you who sponsor the show. Um, Next episode will be a featured species episode, and I'll be sending out stickers for that. So if you're interested in getting those stickers, go to patreon.com slash lumber update and sponsor the show. Until then, go buy some lumber. Count the rings of that lumber if you want. It's not going to tell you how strong or how weak it is. Sorry, that's a myth.